Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 15 of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 15. Hyperbola or Parabola? We may perhaps be astonished to find Barbicane and his companions so little occupied with the future reserved for them in their metal prison which was bearing them through the infinity of space. Instead of asking where they were going, they passed their time making experiments, as if they had been quietly installed in their own study. We might answer that men so strong-minded were above such anxieties, that they did not trouble themselves about such trifles, and that they had something else to do than to occupy their minds with the future. The truth was that they were not masters of their projectile. They could neither check its course nor alter its direction. A sailor can change the head of his ship as he pleases. An aeronaut can give a vertical motion to his balloon. They, on the contrary, had no power over their vehicle. Every maneuver was forbidden. Hence the inclination to let things alone, or as the sailors say, let her run. Where did they find themselves at this moment, at eight o'clock in the morning, of the day called upon the earth the 6th of December. Very certainly in the neighborhood of the moon, and even near enough for her to look to them like an enormous black screen upon the firmament. As to the distance which separated them, it was impossible to estimate it. The projectile, held by some unaccountable force, had been within four miles of grazing the satellite's north pole. But since entering the cone of shadow these last two hours, had the distance increased or diminished? Every point of mark was wanting by which to estimate both the direction and the speed of the projectile. Perhaps it was rapidly leaving the disk, so that it would soon quit the pure shadow. Perhaps again, on the other hand, it might be nearing it so much that in a short time it might strike some high point on the invisible hemisphere, which would doubtlessly have ended the journey much to the detriment of the travellers. A discussion arose on this subject, and Michel Ardin, always ready with an explanation, gave it as his opinion that the projectile, held by the lunar attraction, would end by falling on the surface of the terrestrial globe, like an aerolite. First of all, my friend, answered Barbicane, every aerolite does not fall to the earth. It is only a small proportion which do so, and if we had passed into an aerolite, it does not necessarily follow that we should ever reach the surface of the moon. But how if we get near enough? replied Michel. Pure mistake, replied Barbicane. 
have you not seen shooting stars rush through the sky by thousands at certain seasons yes well these stars or rather corpuscles only shine when they are heated by gliding over the atmospheric layers now if they enter the atmosphere they pass at least within forty miles of the earth but they seldom fall upon it the same with our projectile it may approach very near to the moon and yet not fall upon it but then asked michel i shall be curious to know how our erring vehicle will act in space i see but two hypotheses replied barbicane after some moments reflection what are they the projectile has the choice between two mathematical curves and it will follow one or the other according to the speed with which it is animated and which at this moment i cannot estimate yes said nicholl it will follow either a parabola or a hyperbola just so replied barbicane with certain speed it will assume the parabola and with a greater the hyperbola i like those grand words exclaimed michel ardin one knows directly what they mean and pray what is your parabola if you please my friend answered the captain the parabola is a curve of the second order the result of the section of a cone intersected by a plane parallel to one of its sides ah ah said michel in a satisfied tone it is very nearly continued nicholl the course described by a bomb launched from a mortar perfect and the hyperbola the hyperbola michel is a curve of the second order produced by the intersection of a conic surface and a plane parallel to its axis and constitutes two branches separated one from the other both tending indefinitely in the two directions is it possible exclaimed michel ardin in a serious tone as if they had told him of some serious event what i particularly like in your definition of the hyperbola i was going to say hyperblague is that it is still more obscure than the word you pretend to define nicholl and barbicane cared little for michel ardin's fun they were deep in a scientific discussion what curve would the projectile follow was their hobby one maintained the hyperbola the other the parabola they gave each other reasons bristling with x their arguments were couched in language which made michel jump the discussion was hot and neither would give up his chosen curve to his adversary this scientific dispute lasted so long that it made michel very impatient now gentlemen cosines will you cease to throw parabolas and hyperbolas at each other's heads i want to understand the only interesting question in the whole affair we shall follow one or other of these curves good but where will they lead to nowhere replied nicholl how nowhere evidently said barbicane they are open curves which may be prolonged indefinitely 
ah savants cried michel and what are either the one or the other to us from the moment we know that they equally lead us into infinite space barbicane and nickel could not forbear smiling they had just been creating art for art's sake never had so idle a question been raised at such an inopportune moment the sinister truth remained that whether hyperbolically or parabolically borne away the projectile would never again meet either the earth or the moon what would become of these bold travellers in the immediate future if they did not die of hunger if they did not die of thirst in some days when the gas failed they would die from want of air unless the cold had killed them first still important as it was to economize the gas the excessive lowness of the surrounding temperature obliged them to consume a certain quantity strictly speaking they could do without its light but not without its heat fortunately the caloric generated by Ricet's and Renault's apparatus raised the temperature of the interior of the projectile a little and without much expenditure they were able to keep it bearable but observations had now become very difficult the dampness of the projectile was condensed on the windows and congealed immediately this cloudiness had to be dispersed continually in any case they might hope to be able to discover some phenomena of the highest interest but up to this time the disk remained dumb and dark it did not answer the multiplicity of questions put by these ardent minds a matter which drew this reflection from michel apparently a just one if ever we begin this journey over again we shall do well to choose the time when the moon is new certainly said nicholl that circumstance will be more favourable i allow that the moon immersed in the sun's rays will not be visible during the transit but instead we should see the earth which would be full and what is more if we were drawn round the moon as at this moment we should at least have the advantage of seeing the invisible part of her disk magnificently lit well said nicholl replied michel ardan what do you think barbicane i think this answered the grave president if ever we begin this journey again we shall start at the same time and under the same conditions suppose we had attained our end would it not have been better to have found continents in broad daylight than a country plunged in utter darkness would not our first installation have been made under better circumstances yes evidently as to the invisible side we could have visited it in our exploring expeditions on the lunar globe so that the time of the full moon was well chosen but we ought to have arrived at the end and in order to have so arrived we ought to have suffered no deviation on the road i have nothing to say to that answered michel ardan here is however a good opportunity lost of observing the other side of the moon but the projectile was now describing in the shadow that incalculable course which no sight mark would allow them to ascertain had its direction been altered either by the influence of the lunar attraction or by the action of some unknown star barbicane could not say but a change had taken place in the relative position of the vehicle 
and Barbicane verified it about four in the morning. The change consisted in this, that the base of the projectile had turned towards the moon's surface, and was so held by a perpendicular passing through its axis. The attraction, that is to say, the weight, had brought about this alteration. The heaviest part of the projectile inclined towards the invisible disk as if it would fall upon it. Was it falling? Were the travellers attaining that much-desired end? No. And the observation of a sign-point, quite inexplicable in itself, showed Barbicane that his projectile was not nearing the moon, and that it had shifted by following an almost concentric curve. This point of mark was a luminous brightness, which Nichol sighted suddenly, on the limit of the horizon formed by the black disk. This point could not be confounded with a star. It was a reddish incandescence which increased by degrees, a decided proof that the projectile was shifting towards it and not falling normally on the surface of the moon. "'A volcano! It is a volcano in action!' cried Nicholl. "'A disemboweling of the interior fires of the moon! That world is not quite extinguished!' "'Yes, an eruption!' replied Barbicane, who was carefully studying the phenomenon through his night-glass. "'What should it be, if not a volcano?' "'But then,' said Michel Ardin, "'in order to maintain that combustion, there must be air. So an atmosphere does surround that part of the moon.' "'Perhaps so,' replied Barbicane. "'But not necessarily.' The volcano, by the decomposition of certain substances, can provide its own oxygen, and thus throw flames into space. It seems to me that the deflagration, by the intense brilliancy of the substances in combustion, is produced in pure oxygen. We must not be in a hurry to proclaim the existence of a lunar atmosphere." The fiery mountain must have been situated about the forty-five degrees south latitude on the invisible part of the disk. But to Barbicane's great displeasure, the curve which the projectile was describing was taking it far from the point indicated by the eruption. Thus he could not determine its nature exactly. Half an hour after being sighted, this luminous point had disappeared behind the dark horizon but the verification of this phenomenon was of considerable consequence in their selenographic studies. It proved that all heat had not yet disappeared from the bowels of this globe, and where heat exists, who can affirm that the vegetable kingdom, nay, even the animal kingdom itself, has not up to this time resisted all destructive influences? The existence of this volcano in eruption unmistakably seen by these earthly savants, would doubtless give rise to many theories favourable to the grave question of the habitability of the moon. Barbicane allowed himself to be carried away by these reflections. He forgot himself in a deep reverie, in which the mysterious destiny of the lunar world was uppermost. He was seeking to combine together the facts observed up to that time when a new incident recalled him briskly to reality. This incident was more than a cosmical phenomenon. It was a threatened danger, 
the consequences of which might be disastrous in the extreme. Suddenly, in the midst of the ether, in the profound darkness, an enormous mass appeared. It was like a moon, but an incandescent moon whose brilliancy was all the more intolerable as it cut sharply on the frightful darkness of space. This mass, of a circular form, threw a light which filled the projectile. The forms of Barbicane, Nicol, and Michel Ardin, bathed in its white sheets, assumed that livid spectral appearance which physicians produce with the fictitious light of alcohol impregnated with salt. "'By Jove!' cried Michel Ardin. "'We are hideous! What is that ill-conditioned moon?' "'A meteor,' replied Barbicane. "'A meteor burning in space?' "'Yes.' This shooting globe, suddenly appearing in shadow, at a distance of at most two hundred miles, ought, according to Barbicane, to have a diameter of two thousand yards. It advanced at a speed of about one mile and a half per second. It cut the projectile's path, and must reach it in some minutes. As it approached, it grew to enormous proportions. Imagine, if possible— the situation of the travellers. It is impossible to describe it. In spite of their courage, their sang-froid, their carelessness of danger, they were mute, motionless with stiffened limbs, a prey to frightful terror. Their projectile, the course of which they could not alter, was rushing straight on this ignited mass, more intense than the open mouth of an oven. It seemed as though they were being precipitated towards an abyss of fire. Barbicane had seized the hands of his two companions, and all three looked through their half-open eyelids upon that asteroid heated to a white heat. If thought was not destroyed within them, if their brains still worked amidst all this awe, they must have given themselves up for lost. Two minutes after the sudden appearance of the meteor, to them two centuries of anguish, the projectile seemed almost about to strike it, when the globe of fire burst like a bomb, but without making any noise in that void where sound, which is but the agitation of the layers of air, could not be generated. Nicol uttered a cry, and he and his companions rushed to the scuttle. What a sight! What pen can describe it? What palette is rich enough in colors to reproduce so magnificent a spectacle? It was like the opening of a crater, like the scattering of an immense conflagration. Thousands of luminous fragments lit up and irradiated space with their fires. Every size, every color, was there intermingled. There were rays of yellow and pale yellow, red, green, gray, a crown of fireworks of all colors. Of the enormous and much-dreaded globe there remained nothing but these fragments carried in all directions, now becoming asteroids in their turn, some flaming like a sword, some surrounded by a whitish cloud, and others leaving behind them trains of brilliant cosmical dust. These incandescent blocks crossed and struck each other, scattering still smaller fragments, some of which struck the projectile. Its left scuttle was even cracked by a violent shock. It seemed to be floating amidst a hail of howitzer shells, the smallest of which might destroy it instantly. 
the light which saturated the ether was so wonderfully intense that Michel, drawing Barbicane and Nickel to his window, exclaimed, "'The invisible moon! Visible at last!' And through a luminous emanation, which lasted some seconds, the whole three caught a glimpse of that mysterious disk which the eye of man now saw for the first time. What could they distinguish at a distance which they could not estimate? Some lengthened bands along the disk, real clouds formed in the midst of a very confined atmosphere, from which emerged not only all the mountains, but also projections of less importance. Its circles, its yawning craters, as capriciously placed as on the visible surface. Then immense spaces, no longer arid plains, but real seas, oceans, widely distributed, reflecting on their liquid surface all the dazzling magic of the fires of space. And lastly, on the surface of the continents, large dark masses, looking like immense forests under the rapid illumination of a brilliance. Was it an illusion, a mistake, an optical illusion? Could they give a scientific assent to an observation so superficially obtained? Dared they pronounce upon the question of its habitability after so slight a glimpse of the invisible disk? But the lightnings in space subsided by degrees, its accidental brilliancy died away. The asteroids dispersed in different directions, and were extinguished in the distance. The ether returned to its accustomed darkness. The stars, eclipsed for a moment, again twinkled in the firmament, and the disk so hastily discerned was again buried in impenetrable night. End of chapter Chapter 16 of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 16 The Southern Hemisphere. The projectile had just escaped a terrible danger, and a very unforeseen one. Who would have thought of such a rencontre with meteors? These erring bodies might create serious perils for the travellers. They were to them so many sandbanks upon that sea of ether which, less fortunate than sailors, they could not escape. But did these adventurers complain of space? No not since nature had given them the splendid sight of a cosmical meteor bursting from expansion, since this inimitable firework, which no Ruggieri could imitate, had lit up for some seconds the invisible glory of the moon. In that flash, continents, seas, and forests had become visible to them. Did an atmosphere, then, bring to this unknown face its life-giving atoms? questions still insoluble, and forever closed against human curiosity. It was then half-past three in the afternoon. The projectile was following its curvilinear direction round the moon. Had its course been again altered by the meteor? It was to be feared so. 
but the projectile must describe a curve unalterably determined by the laws of mechanical reasoning. Barbicane was inclined to believe that this curve would be rather a parabola than a hyperbola, but admitting the parabola, the projectile must quickly have passed through the cone of shadow projected into space opposite the sun. This cone, indeed, is very narrow, the angular diameter of the moon being so little when compared with the diameter of the orb of day, and up to this time the projectile had been floating in the steep shadow. Whatever had been its speed, and it could not have been insignificant, its period of occultation continued. That was evident, but perhaps that would not have been the case in a supposed rigidly parabolical trajectory, a new problem which tormented Barbicane's brain, imprisoned as he was in a circle of unknowns which he could not unravel. Neither of the travellers thought of taking an instant's repose. Each one watched for an unexpected fact, which might throw some new light on their uranographic studies. About five o'clock, Michel Ardent distributed, under the name of dinner, some pieces of bread and cold meat, which were quickly swallowed without either of them abandoning their scuttle, the glass of which was incessantly encrusted by the condensation of vapour. About forty-five minutes past five in the evening, Nicol, armed with his glass, sighted towards the southern border of the moon, and in the direction followed by the projectile, some bright points cut upon the dark shield of the sky. They looked like a succession of sharp points, lengthened into a tremulous line. They were very bright. Such appeared the terminal line of the moon when in one of her octants. They could not be mistaken. It was no longer a simple meteor. This luminous ridge had neither color nor motion, nor was it a volcano in eruption, and Barbicane did not hesitate to pronounce upon it. "'The sun!' he exclaimed. "'What? The sun?' answered Nicol and Michel Ardin. "'Yes, my friends, it is the radiant orb itself lighting up the summit of the mountains situated on the southern borders of the moon. We are evidently nearing the South Pole.' "'After having passed the North Pole,' replied Michel, "'we have made the circuit of our satellite, then?' "'Yes, my good Michel.' "'Then no more hyperbolas, no more parabolas, no more open curves to fear?' "'No, but a closed curve.' "'Which is called?' "'An ellipse. Instead of losing itself in interplanetary space,' It is probable that the projectile will describe an elliptical orbit around the moon. Indeed! And that it will become her satellite. Moon of the moon! cried Michel Ardan. Only I would have you observe, my worthy friend, replied Barbicane, that we are none the less lost for that. Yes, in another manner, and much more pleasantly, answered the careless Frenchman with his most amiable smile. End of chapter. Chapter 17 of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon 
by Jules Verne, Chapter Seventeen, Tycho. At six in the evening, the projectile passed the South Pole at less than forty miles off, a distance equal to that already reached at the North Pole. The elliptical curve was being rigidly carried out. At this moment, the travellers once more entered the blessed rays of the sun. They saw once more those stars which moved slowly from east to west. The radiant orb was saluted by a triple hurrah. With its light it also sent heat, which soon pierced the metal walls. The glass resumed its accustomed appearance. The layers of ice melted as if by enchantment, and immediately, for economy's sake, the gas was put out, the air apparatus alone consuming its usual quantity. "'Ah,' said Nicholl, these rays of heat are good. With what impatience must the Selenites wait the reappearance of the orb of day? Yes, replied Michel Ardin, imbibing, as it were, the brilliant ether, light and heat, all life is contained in them. At this moment the bottom of the projectile deviated somewhat from the lunar surface in order to follow the slightly lengthened elliptical orbit. From this point, had the earth been at the full, Barbicane and his companions could have seen it, but, immersed in the sun's irradiation, she was quite invisible. Another spectacle attracted their attention, that of the southern part of the moon, brought by the glasses to within 450 yards. They did not again leave the scuttles, and noted every detail of this fantastical continent. Mounts Durfel and Leibniz formed two separate groups very near the South Pole. The first group extended from the pole to the 84th parallel, on the eastern part of the orb. The second occupied the eastern border, extending from the 65 degrees of latitude to the pole. On their capriciously formed ridge appeared dazzling sheets, as mentioned by Père Secchi. With more certainty than the illustrious Roman astronomer, Barbicane was enabled to recognize their nature. "'They are snow!' he exclaimed. "'Snow?' repeated Nicholl. "'Yes, Nicholl, snow, the surface of which is deeply frozen. See how they reflect the luminous rays. Cooled lava would never give out such intense reflection. There must then be water. There must be air on the moon. As little as you please, but the fact can no longer be contested.' No, it could not be, and if ever Barbicane should see the earth again, his notes will bear witness to this great fact in his selenographic observations. These mountains of Durfel and Leibniz rose in the midst of plains of a medium extent, which were bounded by an indefinite succession of circles and annular ramparts. These two chains are the only ones met with in this region of circles, comparatively but slightly marked they throw up here and there some sharp points, the highest summit of which attains an altitude of 24,600 feet. But the projectile was high above all this landscape, and the projections disappeared in the intense brilliancy of the disk. And to the eyes of the travellers there reappeared that original aspect of the lunar landscapes, raw in tone, without gradation of colours, and without degrees of shadow, roughly black and white, from the want of diffusion of light. But the sight of this desolate world did not fail to captivate them by its very strangeness, 
they were moving over this region as if they had been born on the breath of some storm, watching heights defile under their feet, piercing the cavities with their eyes, going down into the rifts, climbing the ramparts, sounding these mysterious holes, and levelling all cracks. But no trace of vegetation, no appearance of cities, nothing but stratification, beds of lava, overflowings polished like immense mirrors, reflecting the sun's rays with overpowering brilliancy. Nothing belonging to a living world, everything to a dead world, where avalanches, rolling from the summits of the mountains, would disperse noiselessly at the bottom of the abyss, retaining the motion but wanting the sound. In any case it was the image of death, without its being possible even to say that life had ever existed there. Michel Ardin, however, thought he recognized a heap of ruins, to which he drew Barbicane's attention. It was about the eightieth parallel, in thirty degrees longitude. This heap of stones, rather regularly placed, represented a vast fortress overlooking a long rift, which in former days had served as a bed to the rivers of prehistorical times. Not far from that, rose to a height of 17,400 feet the annular mountains of Short, equal to the Asiatic Caucasus. Michel Ardin, with his accustomed ardor, maintained the evidences of his fortress. Beneath it he discerned the dismantled ramparts of a town, here the still intact arch of a portico, there two or three columns lying under their base, farther on a succession of arches which must have supported the conduit of an aqueduct, in another part the sunken pillars of a gigantic bridge run into the thickest parts of the rift. He distinguished all this, but with so much imagination in his glance, and through glasses so fantastical, that we must mistrust his observation. But who could affirm, who would dare to say, that the amiable fellow did not really see that which his two companions would not see? Moments were too precious to be sacrificed in idle discussion. The Selenite city, whether imaginary or not, had already disappeared afar off. The distance of the projectile from the lunar disk was on the increase, and the details of the soil were being lost in a confused jumble. The reliefs, the circles, the craters, and plains alone remained, and still showed their boundary lines distinctly. At this moment, to the left, lay extended one of the finest circles of lunar orography, one of the curiosities of this continent. It was Newton, which Barbicane recognized without trouble, by referring to the Mappa Selenographica. Newton is situated in exactly 77 degrees south latitude and 16 degrees east longitude. It forms an annular crater, the ramparts of which, rising to a height of 21,300 feet, seem to be impassable. Barbicane made his companions observe that the height of this mountain above the surrounding plain was far from equaling the depth of its crater. This enormous hole was beyond all measurement, and formed a gloomy abyss, the bottom of which the sun's rays could never reach. There, according to Humboldt, reigns utter darkness, which the light of the sun and the earth cannot break. Mythologists could well have made it the mouth of hell. Newton, said Barbicane, 
is the most perfect type of these annular mountains, of which the earth possesses no sample. They prove that the moon's formation, by means of cooling, is due to violent causes, for whilst under the pressure of internal fires the reliefs rise to considerable height, the depths withdraw far below the lunar level. "'I do not dispute the fact,' replied Michel Ardin. Some minutes after passing Newton, the projectile directly overlooked the annular mountain of Moray. It skirted at some distance the summits of Blancanus, and at about half-past seven in the evening reached the circle of Clavius. This circle, one of the most remarkable of the disk, is situated in fifty-eight degrees south latitude and fifteen degrees east longitude. Its height is estimated at 22,950 feet. The travellers, at a distance of 24 miles, reduced to four by their glasses, could admire this vast crater in its entirety. Terrestrial volcanoes, said Barbicane, are but molehills compared with those of the moon. Measuring the old craters formed by the first eruptions of Vesuvius and Etna, we find them little more than three miles in breadth. In France, the circle of Cantal measures six miles across. At Ceylon, the circle of the island is forty miles, which is considered the largest on the globe. What are these diameters against that of Clavius, which we overlook at this moment? What is its breadth? asked Nicholl. It is one hundred fifty miles, replied Barbicane. This circle is certainly the most important on the moon, but many others measure 150, 100, or 75 miles. "'Ah, my friends!' exclaimed Michel. "'Can you picture to yourselves what this now peaceful orb of night must have been when its craters, filled with thunderings, vomited at the same time smoke and tongues of flame? What a wonderful spectacle then, and now what decay!' This moon is nothing more than a thin carcass of fireworks, whose squibs, rockets, serpents, and suns, after a superb brilliancy, have left but sadly broken cases. Who can say the cause, the reason, the motive force of these cataclysms? Barbicane was not listening to Michel Ardin. He was contemplating those ramparts of Clavius, formed by large mountains spread over several miles. At the bottom of the immense cavity burrowed hundreds of small extinguished craters, riddling the soil like a colander, and overlooked by a peak fifteen thousand feet high. Around the plain appeared desolate. Nothing so arid as these reliefs, nothing so sad as these ruins of mountains, and, if we may so express ourselves, these fragments of peaks and mountains which strewed the soil. The satellite seemed to have burst at this spot. The projectile was still advancing, and this movement did not subside. Circles, craters, and uprooted mountains succeeded each other incessantly. No more plains, no more seas, a never-ending Switzerland and Norway. And lastly, in the center of this region of crevasses, the most splendid mountain on the lunar disk, the dazzling Tycho in which posterity will ever preserve the name of the illustrious Danish astronomer. 
In observing the full moon in a cloudless sky, no one has failed to remark this brilliant point of the southern hemisphere. Michel Ardan used every metaphor that his imagination could supply to designate it by. To him this Tycho was a focus of light, a centre of irradiation, a crater vomiting rays. It was the tire of a brilliant wheel, an asteria enclosing the disc with its silver tentacles, an enormous eye filled with flames, a glory carved for Pluto's head, a star launched by the Creator's hand and crushed against the face of the moon. Tycho formed such a concentration of light that the inhabitants of the earth can see it without glasses, though at a distance of 240,000 miles. Imagine, then, its intensity to the eye of observers placed at a distance of only 50 miles. Seen through this pure ether, its brilliancy was so intolerable that Barbicane and his friends were obliged to blacken their glasses with the gas smoke before they could bear the splendor. Then, silent, scarcely uttering an interjection of admiration, they gazed, they contemplated. All their feelings, all their impressions, were concentrated in that look, as under any violent emotion all life is concentrated at the heart. Tycho belongs to the system of radiating mountains, like Aristarchus and Copernicus, but it is of all the most complete and decided, showing unquestionably the frightful volcanic action to which the formation of the moon is due. Tycho is situated in 43 degrees south latitude and 12 degrees east longitude. Its center is occupied by a crater 50 miles broad. It assumes a slightly elliptical form, and is surrounded by an enclosure of annular ramparts, which on the east and west overlook the outer plain from a height of 15,000 feet. It is a group of Mont Blancs, placed round one common centre and crowned by radiating beams. What this incomparable mountain really is, with all the projections converging toward it, and the interior excrescences of its crater, photography itself could never represent. Indeed, it is during the full moon that Tycho is seen in all its splendour. Then all shadows disappear, the foreshortening of perspective disappears, and all proofs become white. A disagreeable fact, for this strange region would have been marvellous if reproduced with photographic exactness. It is but a group of hollows, craters, circles, a network of crests. Then, as far as the eye could see, a whole volcanic network cast upon this encrusted soil. One can then understand that the bubbles of this central eruption have kept their first form. Crystallized by cooling, they have stereotyped that aspect which the moon formerly presented when under the Plutonian forces. The distance which separated the travellers from the annular summits of Tycho was not so great but that they could catch the principal details. Even on the causeway forming the fortifications of Tycho, the mountains hanging on to the interior and exterior sloping flanks rose in stories like gigantic terraces. They appeared to be higher by three hundred or four hundred feet to the west than to the east. No system of terrestrial encampment could equal these natural fortifications. A town built at the bottom of this circular cavity would have been utterly inaccessible. 
inaccessible and wonderfully extended over this soil covered with picturesque projections. Indeed, nature had not left the bottom of this crater flat and empty. It possessed its own peculiar orography, a mountainous system, making it a world in itself. The travellers could distinguish clearly cones, central hills, remarkable positions of the soil, naturally placed to receive the chef d'oeuvre of Selenite architecture. There was marked out the place for a temple, here the ground of a forum, on this spot the plan of a palace, in another the plateau for a citadel, the whole overlooked by a central mountain of fifteen hundred feet. A vast circle, in which ancient Rome could have been held in its entirety ten times over. Ah! exclaimed Michel Ardin, enthusiastic at the sight. What a grand town might be constructed within that ring of mountains! A quiet city, a peaceful refuge, beyond all human misery. How calm and isolated those misanthropes, those haters of humanity, might live there, and all who have a distaste for social life. All! It would be too small for them, replied Barbicane simply. End of chapter. Chapter 18 of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 18 grave questions. But the projectile had passed the enceinte of Tycho, and Barbicane and his two companions watched with scrupulous attention the brilliant rays which the celebrated mountain shed so curiously all over the horizon. What was this radiant glory? What geological phenomenon had designed these ardent beams? This question occupied Barbicane's mind. Under his eyes ran in all directions luminous furrows, raised at the edges and concave in the centre, some twelve miles, others thirty miles broad. These brilliant trains extended in some places to within six hundred miles of Tycho, and seemed to cover, particularly towards the east, the northeast, and the north, the half of the southern hemisphere. One of these jets extended as far as the circle of Neander, situated on the fortieth meridian. Another, by a slight curve, furrowed the Sea of Nectar, breaking against the chain of Pyrenees after a circuit of eight hundred miles. Others, towards the west, covered the Sea of Clouds and the Sea of Humours with a luminous network. What was the origin of these sparkling rays, which shone on the plains as well as on the reliefs, at whatever height they might be? All started from a common centre— the crater of Tycho. They sprang from him. Herschel attributed their brilliancy to currents of lava congealed by the cold, an opinion, however, which has not been generally adopted. Other astronomers have seen in these inexplicable rays a kind of moraines, rows of erratic blocks, which have been thrown up at the period of Tycho's formation. "'And why not?' asked Nicol of Barbicane, who was relating and rejecting these different opinions. 
because the regularity of these luminous lines and the violence necessary to carry volcanic matter to such distances is inexplicable eh by jove replied michel ardin it seems easy enough to me to explain the origin of these rays indeed said barbicane indeed continued michel it is enough to say that it is a vast star similar to that produced by a ball or a stone thrown at a square of glass well replied barbicane smiling and what hand would be powerful enough to throw a ball to give such a shock as that the hand is not necessary answered nicol not at all confounded and as to the stone let us suppose it to be a comet ah those much abused comets exclaimed barbicane my brave michel your explanation is not bad but your comet is useless the shock which produced that rent must have come from the inside of the star a violent contraction of the lunar crust while cooling might suffice to imprint this gigantic star a contraction something like a lunar stomach ache said michel ardin besides added barbicane this opinion is that of an english savant naismith and it seems to me to sufficiently explain the radiation of these mountains that naismith was no fool replied michel long did the travellers whom such a sight could never weary admire the splendours of tycho their projectile saturated with luminous gleams and the double irradiation of sun and moon must have appeared like an incandescent globe they had passed suddenly from excessive cold to intense heat nature was thus preparing them to become selenites become selenites that idea brought up once more the question of the habitability of the moon after what they had seen could the travellers solve it would they decide for or against it michel ardin persuaded his two friends to form an opinion and asked them directly if they thought that men and animals were represented in the lunar world i think that we can answer said barbicane but according to my idea the question ought not to be put in that form i ask it to be put differently put it in your own way replied michel here it is continued barbicane the problem is a double one and requires a double solution is the moon habitable has the moon ever been inhabitable good replied nicol first let us see whether the moon is habitable to tell the truth i know nothing about it answered michel and i answer in the negative continued barbicane in her actual state with her surrounding atmosphere certainly very much reduced her seas for the most part dried up her insufficient supply of water restricted vegetation sudden alterations of cold and heat her days and nights of three hundred fifty-four hours the moon does not seem habitable to me nor does she seem propitious to animal development nor sufficient for the wants of existence as we understand it agreed replied nicol but is not the moon habitable for creatures differently organized from ourselves that question is more difficult to answer but i will try 
and I asked Nicholl if motion appears to him to be a necessary result of life, whatever be its organization. Without a doubt, answered Nicholl. Then, my worthy companion, I would answer that we have observed the lunar continent at a distance of five hundred yards at most, and that nothing seemed to us to move on the moon's surface. The presence of any kind of life would have been betrayed by its attendant marks, such as divers' buildings, and even by ruins. And what have we seen? Everywhere and always the geological works of nature, never the work of man." If, then, there exist representatives of the animal kingdom on the moon, they must have fled to those unfathomable cavities which the eye cannot reach, which I cannot admit, for they must have left traces of their passage on those plains which the atmosphere must cover, however slightly raised it may be. These traces are nowhere visible. There remains but one hypothesis, that of a living race to which motion, which is life, is foreign. One might as well say, living creatures which do not live, replied Michel. Just so, said Barbicane, which for us has no meaning. Then we may form our opinion, said Michel. Yes, replied Nicholl. Very well, continued Michel Ardin. The scientific commission assembled in the projectile of the gun club after having founded their argument on facts recently observed, decide unanimously upon the question of the habitability of the moon. No, the moon is not habitable. This decision was consigned by President Barbicane to his notebook, where the process of the sitting of the 6th of December may be seen. Now, said Nicholl, let us attack the second question, an indispensable complement of the first. I ask the Honourable Commission, if the moon is not habitable, has she ever been inhabited, Citizen Barbicane? My friends, replied Barbicane, I did not undertake this journey in order to form an opinion on the past habitability of our satellite, but I will add that our personal observations only confirm me in this opinion. I believe, indeed, I affirm, that the moon has been inhabited by a human race organized like our own, that she has produced animals anatomically formed like the terrestrial animals. But I add that these races, human or animal, have had their day and are now forever extinct. Then, asked Michel, the moon must be older than the earth? No, said Barbicane decidedly but a world which has grown old quicker, and whose formation and deformation have been more rapid. Relatively, the organizing force of matter has been much more violent in the interior of the moon than in the interior of the terrestrial globe. The actual state of this cracked, twisted, and burst disk abundantly proves this. The moon and the earth were nothing but gaseous masses originally. These gases have passed into a liquid state under different influences, and the solid masses have been formed later. But most certainly our sphere was still gaseous or liquid when the moon was solidified by cooling and had become habitable. I believe it, said Nicholl. Then, continued Barbicane, an atmosphere surrounded it, 
the waters contained within this gaseous envelope could not evaporate under the influence of air water light solar heat and central heat vegetation took possession of the continents prepared to receive it and certainly life showed itself about this period for nature does not expend herself in vain and a world so wonderfully formed for habitation must necessarily be inhabited but said nicholl many phenomena inherent in our satellite might cramp the expansion of the animal and vegetable kingdom for example its days and nights of three hundred fifty four hours at the terrestrial poles they last six months said michel an argument of little value since the poles are not inhabited let us observe my friends continued barbicane that if in the actual state of the moon its long nights and long days created differences of temperature insupportable to organization it was not so at the historical period of time the atmosphere enveloped the disk with a fluid mantle vapor deposited itself in the shape of clouds this natural screen tempered the ardor of the solar rays and retained the nocturnal radiation light like heat can diffuse itself in the air hence an equality between the influences which no longer exists now that that atmosphere has almost entirely disappeared and now i am going to astonish you astonish us said michel ardin i firmly believe that at the period when the moon was inhabited the nights and days did not last three hundred fifty four hours and why asked nicholl quickly because most probably then the rotary motion of the moon upon her axis was not equal to her revolution an equality which presents each part of her disk during fifteen days to the action of the solar rays granted replied nicholl but why should not these two motions have been equal as they are really so because that equality has only been determined by terrestrial attraction and who can say that this attraction was powerful enough to alter the motion of the moon at that period when the earth was still fluid just so replied nicholl and who can say that the moon has always been a satellite of the earth and who can say exclaimed michel ardin that the moon did not exist before the earth their imaginations carried them away into an indefinite field of hypothesis barbicane sought to restrain them these speculations are too high said he problems utterly insoluble do not let us enter upon them let us only admit the insufficiency of the primordial attraction and then by the inequality of the two motions of rotation and revolution the days and nights could have succeeded each other on the moon as they succeed each other on the earth besides even without these conditions life was possible and so asked michel ardin humanity has disappeared from the moon yes replied barbicane after having doubtless remained persistently for millions of centuries by degrees the atmosphere becoming rarefied the disk became uninhabitable as the terrestrial globe will one day become by cooling by cooling certainly replied barbicane 
as the internal fires became extinguished and the incandescent matter concentrated itself, the lunar crust cooled. By degrees the consequences of these phenomena showed themselves in the disappearance of organized beings, and by the disappearance of vegetation. Soon the atmosphere was rarefied, probably withdrawn by terrestrial attraction. Then aerial departure of respirable air and disappearance of water by means of evaporation. At this period the moon becoming uninhabitable was no longer inhabited. It was a dead world, such as we see it today. "'And you say that the same fate is in store for the earth?' "'Most probably.' "'But when?' "'When the cooling of its crust shall have made it uninhabitable.' and have they calculated the time which our unfortunate sphere will take to cool certainly and you know these calculations perfectly but speak then my clumsy savant exclaimed michel ardan for you make me boil with impatience very well my good michel replied barbicane quietly we know what diminution of temperature the earth undergoes in the lapse of a century and according to certain calculations, this mean temperature will, after a period of four hundred thousand years, be brought down to zero. Four hundred thousand years! exclaimed Michel. Ah, I breathe again. Really, I was frightened to hear you. I imagined that we had not more than fifty thousand years to live. Barbicane and Nicholl could not help laughing at their companion's uneasiness. Then Nicholl, who wished to end the discussion, put the second question, which had just been considered again. "'Has the moon been inhabited?' he asked. The answer was unanimously in the affirmative. But during this discussion, fruitful in somewhat hazardous theories, the projectile was rapidly leaving the moon. The liniments faded away from the traveller's eyes, mountains were confused in the distance, and of all the wonderful, strange, and fantastical form of the Earth's satellite, there soon remained nothing but the imperishable remembrance. End of chapter. Chapter 19 of Round the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 19 A Struggle Against the Impossible For a long time Barbicane and his companions looked silently and sadly upon that world which they had only seen from a distance, as Moses saw the land of Canaan, and which they were leaving without a possibility of ever returning to it. The projectile's position with regard to the moon had altered, and the base was now turned to the earth. This change, which Barbicane verified, did not fail to surprise them. If the projectile was to gravitate round the satellite in an elliptical orbit, why was not its heaviest part turned towards it? as the moon turns hers to the earth. That was a difficult point. 
In watching the course of the projectile, they could see that on leaving the moon it followed a course analogous to that traced in approaching her. It was describing a very long ellipse, which would most likely extend to the point of equal attraction, where the influences of the Earth and its satellite are neutralized. Such was the conclusion which Barbicane very justly drew from facts already observed, a conviction which his two friends shared with him. "'And when arrived at this dead point, what will become of us?' asked Michel Ardin. "'We don't know,' replied Barbicane. "'But one can draw some hypotheses, I suppose?' Two, answered Barbicane. Either the projectile speed will be insufficient, and it will remain forever immovable on this line of double attraction. I prefer the other hypothesis, whatever it may be, interrupted Michel. Or, continued Barbicane, its speed will be sufficient, and it will continue its elliptical course, to gravitate forever around the orb of night. A revolution not at all consoling, said Michel to pass to the state of humble servants to a moon whom we are accustomed to look upon as our own handmaid. So that is the fate in store for us? Neither Barbicane nor Nicholl answered. You do not answer, continued Michel impatiently. There is nothing to answer, said Nicholl. Is there nothing to try? No, answered Barbicane. Do you pretend to fight against the impossible? Why not? Do one Frenchman and two Americans shrink from such a word? And what would you do? Subdue this motion which is bearing us away. Subdue it? Yes, continued Michel, getting animated. Or else alter it and employ it to the accomplishment of our own ends. And how? That is your affair. If artillerymen are not masters of their projectile, they are not artillerymen. If the projectile is to command the gunner, we had better ram the gunner into the gun. My faith, fine savants, who do not know what is to become of us after inducing me— Inducing you, cried Barbicane and Nicholl. Inducing you? What do you mean by that? No recrimination, said Michel. I do not complain. The trip has pleased me. The projectile agrees with me. But let us do all that is humanly possible to do to fall somewhere, even if only on the moon. We ask no better, my worthy Michel, replied Barbicane, but means fail us. We cannot alter the motion of the projectile? No. Nor diminish its speed? No. Not even by lightening it as they lighten an overloaded vessel? What would you throw out? said Nicholl. We have no ballast on board, and indeed it seems to me that if lightened it would go much quicker. Slower. Quicker. Neither slower nor quicker, said Barbicane, wishing to make his two friends agree, for we float in space and must no longer consider specific weight. Very well, cried Michel Ardin in a decided voice. Then there remains but one thing to do. What is it? said Nicholl. "'Breakfast,' answered the cool, audacious Frenchman, who always brought up this solution at the most difficult juncture. 
In any case, if this operation had no influence on the projectile's course, it could at least be tried without inconvenience, and even with success from a stomachic point of view. Certainly Michel had none but good ideas. They breakfasted then at two in the morning. The hour mattered little. Michel served his usual repast, crowned by a glorious bottle drawn from his private cellar. If ideas did not crowd on their brains, we must despair of the Chamberton of 1853. The repast finished, observations began again. Around the projectile, at an invariable distance, were the objects which had been thrown out. Evidently, in its translatory motion round the moon, it did not pass through any atmosphere, for the specific weight of these different objects would have checked their relative speed. On the side of the terrestrial sphere nothing was to be seen. The earth was but a day old, having been new the night before at twelve, and two days must elapse before its crescent, freed from the solar rays, would serve as a clock to the selenites, as in its rotary motion each of its points after twenty-four hours repasses the same lunar meridian. On the moon's side the sight was different. The orb shone in all her splendor amidst innumerable constellations, whose purity could not be troubled by her rays. On the disk the plains were already returning to the dark tint which is seen from the earth. The other part of the nimbus remained brilliant, and in the midst of this general brilliancy Tycho shone prominently like a sun. Barbicane had no means of estimating the projectile's speed, but reasoning showed that it must uniformly decrease, according to the laws of mechanical reasoning. Having admitted that the projectile was describing an orbit round the moon, this orbit must necessarily be elliptical. Science proves that it must be so. No motive body circulating round an attracting body fails in this law. Every orbit described in space is elliptical. And why should the projectile of the gun club escape this natural arrangement? In elliptical orbits, the attracting body always occupies one of the foci, so that at one moment the satellite is nearer, and at another farther from the orb around which it gravitates. When the Earth is nearest the Sun, she is in her perihelion, and in her aphelion at the farthest point. Speaking of the Moon, she is nearest to the Earth in her perigee, and farthest from it in her apogee. To use analogous expressions with which the astronomer's language is enriched, if the projectile remains as a satellite of the moon, we must say that it is in its aposceline at its farthest point, and in its periceline at its nearest. In the latter case, the projectile would attain its maximum of speed, and in the former its minimum. It was evidently moving towards its apostolical point, and Barbicane had reason to think that its speed would decrease up to this point, and then increase by degrees as it neared the moon. This speed would even become nil if this point joined that of equal attraction. Barbicane studied the consequences of these different situations, and thinking what inference he could draw from them when he was roughly disturbed by a cry from Michel Ardin. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed. "'I must admit we are downright simpletons!' "'I do not say we are not,' replied Barbicane. "'But why?' 
because we have a very simple means of checking the speed which is bearing us from the moon, and we do not use it. And what is the means? To use the recoil contained in our rockets. Done, said Nicol. We have not used this force yet, said Barbicane. It is true, and we will do so. When? asked Michel. When the time comes. Observe, my friends, that in the position occupied by the projectile, an oblique position with regard to the lunar disk, our rockets, in slightly altering its direction, might turn it from the moon instead of drawing it nearer? Just so, replied Michel. Let us wait, then. By some inexplicable influence, the projectile is turning its base towards the earth. It is probable that at the point of equal attraction, its conical cap will be directed rigidly towards the moon. At that moment we may hope that its speed will be nil, then will be the moment to act, and with the influence of our rockets we may perhaps provoke a fall directly on the surface of the lunar disk. "'Bravo!' said Michel. "'What we did not do, what we could not do on our first passage at the dead point, because the projectile was then endowed with too great a speed.' "'Very well reasoned,' said Nicol. "'Let us wait patiently,' continued Barbicane, "'putting every chance on our side, and after having so much despaired, I may say I think we shall gain our end.' This conclusion was a signal for Michel Ardin's hips and hurrahs, and none of the audacious boobies remembered the question that they themselves had solved in the negative. "'No, the moon is not inhabited,' No, the moon is probably not habitable, and yet they were going to try everything to reach her. One single question remained to be solved. At what precise moment the projectile would reach the point of equal attraction, on which the travellers must play their last card? In order to calculate this to within a few seconds, Barbicane had only to refer to his notes, and to reckon the different heights taken on the lunar parallels. Thus the time necessary to travel over the distance between the dead point and the south pole would be equal to the distance separating the north pole from the dead point. The hours representing the time travelled over were carefully noted, and the calculation was easy. Barbicane found that this point would be reached at one in the morning on the night of the 7th and 8th of December so that, if nothing interfered with its course, it would reach the given point in twenty-two hours. The rockets had primarily been placed to check the fall of the projectile upon the moon, and now they were going to employ them for a directly contrary purpose. In any case, they were ready, and they had only to wait for the moment to set fire to them. "'Since there is nothing to be done,' said Nicol, "'I make a proposition.' "'What is it?' asked Barbicane. "'I propose to go to sleep.' "'What a motion!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'It is forty hours since we closed our eyes,' said Nicol. "'Some hours of sleep <sighs> will restore our strength.' "'Never,' interrupted Michel. "'Well,' continued Nicol, "'every one to his taste, I shall go to sleep.' and stretching himself on the divan, he soon snored like a forty-eight-pounder. "'That nickel has a good deal of sense,' said Barbicane. 
Presently I shall follow his example. Some moments after, his continued bass supported the captain's baritone. Certainly, said Michel Ardin, finding himself alone, these practical people have sometimes most opportune ideas. And with his long legs stretched out, and his great arms folded under his head, Michel slept in his turn. But this sleep could be neither peaceful nor lasting. The minds of these three men were too much occupied, and some hours after, about seven in the morning, all three were on foot at the same instant. The projectile was still leaving the moon, and turning her conical part more and more towards her. An explicable phenomenon, but one which happily served Barbicane's ends. Seventeen hours more, and the moment for action would have arrived. The day seemed long. However bold the travellers might be, they were greatly impressed by the approach of that moment which would decide all, either precipitate their fall onto the moon, or forever chain them in an immutable orbit. They counted the hours as they passed, too slow for their wish. Barbicane and Nicol were obstinately plunged in their calculations, Michel going and coming between the narrow walls, and watching that impassive moon with a longing eye. At times recollections of the earth crossed their minds. They saw once more their friends of the gun club, and the dearest of all, J.T. Maston. At that moment the Honorable Secretary must be filling his post on the Rocky Mountains. If he could see the projectile through the glass of his gigantic telescope, what would he think? After seeing it disappear behind the moon's south pole, he would see them reappear by the north pole. They must therefore be a satellite of a satellite. Had J.T. Maston given this unexpected news to the world? Was this the denouement of this great enterprise? But the day passed without incident. The terrestrial midnight arrived. The 8th of December was beginning. One hour more— and the point of equal attraction would be reached. What speed would then animate the projectile? They could not estimate it, but no error could vitiate Barbicane's calculations. At one in the morning this speed ought to be, and would be, nil. Besides, another phenomenon would mark the projectile's stopping point on the neutral line. At that spot the two attractions, lunar and terrestrial, would be annulled, objects would weigh no more. This singular fact, which had surprised Barbicane and his companions so much in going, would be repeated on their return under the very same conditions. At this precise moment, they must act. Already the projectile's conical top was sensibly turned towards the lunar disk, presented in such a way as to utilize the whole of the recoil produced by the pressure of the rocket apparatus. The chances were in favor of the travelers. If its speed was utterly annulled on this dead point, a decided movement towards the moon would suffice, however slight, to determine its fall. Five minutes to one,' said Nicholl. "'All is ready,' replied Michel Ardin, directing a lighted match to the flame of the gas. "'Wait,' said Barbicane, holding his chronometer in his hand. At that moment weight had no effect. The travellers felt in themselves the entire disappearance of it. They were very near the neutral point if they did not touch it. 
One o'clock, said Barbicane. Michel Ardin applied the lighted match to a train in communication with the rockets. No detonation was heard in the inside, for there was no air, but through the scuttles Barbicane saw a prolonged smoke, the flames of which were immediately extinguished. The projectile sustained a certain shock, which was sensibly felt in the interior. The three friends looked and listened without speaking, and scarcely breathing. One might have heard the beating of their hearts amidst this perfect silence. "'Are we falling?' asked Michel Ardin at length. "'No,' said Nicholl, "'since the bottom of the projectile is not turning to the lunar disk.' At this moment Barbicane, quitting the scuttle, turned to his two companions. He was frightfully pale, his forehead wrinkled, and his lips contracted. "'We are falling,' said he. "'Ah!' cried Michel Ardin. "'On to the moon?' "'On to the earth!' "'The devil!' exclaimed Michel Ardin, adding philosophically. "'Well, when we came into this projectile we were very doubtful as to the ease with which we should get out of it.' And now this fearful fall had begun. The speed retained had borne the projectile beyond the dead point. The explosion of the rockets could not divert its course. This speed in going had carried it over the neutral line, and in returning had done the same thing. The laws of physics condemned it to pass through every point which it had already gone through. It was a terrible fall, from a height of 160,000 miles, and no springs to break it. According to the laws of gunnery, the projectile must strike the earth with a speed equal to that with which it left the mouth of the Columbiad a speed of sixteen thousand yards in the last second. But to give some figures of comparison, it has been reckoned that an object thrown from the top of the towers of Notre-Dame, the height of which is only two hundred feet, will arrive on the pavement at a speed of two hundred forty miles per hour. Here the projectile must strike the earth with a speed of one hundred fifteen thousand two hundred miles per hour. "'We are lost,' said Michel coolly. "'Very well. If we die,' answered Barbicane, with a sort of religious enthusiasm, "'the result of our travels will be magnificently spread. It is his own secret that God will tell us. In the other life the soul will want to know nothing, either of machines or engines. It will be identified with eternal wisdom. In fact—' interrupted Michel Ardin. The whole of the other world may well console us for the loss of that inferior orb called the moon. Barbicane crossed his arms on his breast with a motion of sublime resignation, saying at the same time, The will of heaven be done. End of chapter.